morning, and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 2. And welcome to week 5 of our journey through the Gospel of John, where John is calling all of us from whatever place that we are, even from believers to unbelievers. He's calling all of us to believe in Jesus or to keep believing in Him. This morning we come to the first of 37 miracles found in all of the Gospels and the first of seven miracles, or as John calls them, signs found in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John kind of takes and divides things and puts them in sevens. You have seven miracles, you have seven I am statements, you have seven witnesses, seven pictures um, of the Holy Spirit and working. So John kind of takes this, it continues on in Revelation as John wrote. But today we see the first of seven miracles in the Gospel of John. And a miracle is what happens when that which cannot be fully explained collides which that, with that which can't be denied. So when the unexplainable runs into the undeniable, we have a miracle. And C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, a miracle is more than something unusual. Though in ordinary speech, we might call such events miracles. A true miracle is something beyond man's intellectual or scientific ability to accomplish. Or simply put, it is not natural. It is supernatural, which is what we're talking. That is miracles today. It's supernatural. And we often act like we don't know much about miracles yet. Yet right now, although it feels like you are sitting still, it's an illusion of miraculous proportions. In fact, right now, the reality is the planet Earth is spinning around its axis at an equatorial speed of 1,040 miles per hour. We are also right now speeding through space at an average velocity of 67,108 miles per hour. That's not just faster than a speeding bullet. That's 87 times faster than the speed of sound. On a day that you don't feel like you've accomplished much, just remind yourself that you've traveled almost 1.6 million miles through space every day. Just remind yourself of that. And then to top things off, the Milky Way galaxy is spinning like a top at a mind-boggling rate of 515,000 miles per hour. If that's not miraculous, I don't know what is. Yet, when was the last time you thanked God for keeping us in orbit? I would probably say never. When was the last time at the end of the day you prayed, Lord, I wasn't sure we were going to make the full rotation today, but you did it again. I would again say probably never. And I'll tell you why. Because God is so good at being God that we often take him for granted. Even the miracles we take for granted. Imagine living in a world where you take God and his miracles for granted. And I would say we live in that world. We live in that world where we take his miracles and who he is for granted. But we need to see him and his miracles for who he is and for what they are. Oliver Wendell Holmes said that a mind stretched by a new idea never returns to its original shape. So when a mind is stretched by a new idea, it never returns. And I believe that that is what God is doing in this series. He wants to stretch our faith in his power. He wants to increase our capability to believe. 
and never to return back. And I, I believe with all my heart, if we just continue to seek Jesus, we will find ourselves in the midst of the miraculous. We will find ourselves in the midst of that which cannot be explained or denied. So this morning, we're going to jump into Jesus' first miracle. We're going to read, even though the screen says 1 through 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 because verse 12 is kind of a, a verse that doesn't fit either section. But if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word, either before you or you'll see it on the screen. Beginning at verse 1, John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And this, or after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, just speak to us today by your word, through your spirit. Lead us, Jesus, to you. Lead us more and more closer and closer to you. That we would leave here believing you more. Trusting you more saying lord do you have your way in us do that today we ask in jesus name amen you may be seated so let's just set the scene a little bit so jesus and his disciples not all 12 he only had five up to this point the five we just read about in john 1 um, they are at a wedding and the host runs out of wine now, that's probably not a big deal to us. In fact, I have performed several weddings that I wish the wine would have run out um, without a, a doubt. But so for us, that might not seem like a big deal. Yet in this cultural context, to run out of wine would have been a public shame. Wine represented joy. So to run out of wine at your wedding feast is to say that our wedding and our days of marriage is going to be uh, filled with zero joy and our joy is going to run out. So that's what you'd be telling the community around you. It would have basically been the big day would have turned into a very bad day for this couple, for their family, especially for the groom whose responsibility it was to provide the wine. If there's one day that we want everything to be perfect, it's the wedding day. It's what we desire. Yet, just for context, just more context for us, the Jewish wedding and that day had three stages. First was the betrothal stage, which took place at least a year before the wedding ceremony. We think about Joseph and Mary being betrothed. They, you know, this could not be broken except by divorce, although the marriage up to this point had not been consummated. 
The second phase was when the, it's called the procession where the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house and would get his, his bride, would get her family and her friends and bring them back to his house that he had been preparing for over a year or for that year period. And then the third stage, which is described in our text, was the wedding feast, which would last as long as a week, up to a week of just feasting and rejoicing. This was a major social event in the community of that day. So strangely enough, Jesus' first miracle was not about saving a life. It was about saving face. And strangely enough, it was about the glory of Jesus. So kind of a weird thing to think about. Yet before we dive in, I want things to get a little uncomfortable first. Because I want us, in the light of where we, what we just read, the topic we come up to today, I want us to quickly answer the question, is, is it a sin to drink alcohol? Is it a sin to drink alcohol? And when it comes to, to alcohol, to Jesus, many try to downplay um, the content here and pretend that Jesus, like all good Baptists, only drank Welch's grape juice. And um, that's kind of what they lay in front of us. Yet it is clear that in Jesus' day, the wine was fermented. Now, it, is not, it did not contain the level of alcohol that our wine does today. It was three parts water, one part wine then. But often when faced with this question, people tend to go to, to two different extremes. Either number one, a Christian should never drink ever, ever, ever under any circumstances whatsoever. Or it's not a sin to drink, and I can drink as much as I want to as long as I don't get drunk. I love the words of, of Pastor uh, John Piper, who said, The first answer that I give to the question, is it a sin to drink alcohol, is the same answer I give to the question, is it a sin to drink water? And the answer is, it could be. Drinking water when you should be giving a glass to someone else in need is a sin. Drinking water after someone just warned you it's contaminated with poison would be a sin of pride and stupidity. So the quick answer is that no, it's not a sin to drink alcohol. And thankfully, the Bible isn't silent on the issue of drinking alcohol. A simple search of Scripture, and you will quickly find that Scriptures are filled with um, tons of advice about alcohol. In a nutshell, the Bible doesn't condemn drinking. At times, it says that wine cheers the heart. But the Bible does, without a doubt, condemn drunkenness. And the Bible does give warning after warning after warning about wine and strong drink. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So throughout Scripture, drunkenness is Forbidden because it leads to a lack of self-control. And get this, even worse, it often becomes a cheap substitute to being filled with the Holy Spirit. So drunkenness becomes a cheap, cheap substitute from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul could not be any clearer. And as we consider what the Bible says about drinking alcohol, here are three guidelines I just want to give you before we jump in this morning. First, refuse to be mastered by alcohol. Refuse to be mastered by it. If you drink, drink in moderation. You drink because you have the freedom to do so, but make sure that you are not in bondage. Many professing Christians proclaim to be free in this area, and they are enslaved. They are enslaved in this area. In fact, last time, about three and a half years ago, I kind of preached a message from these same scriptures, many of the same words. There was a couple 
sitting in one of the services, they left because they said, how dare you um, drill in in this area? We don't have a problem. I was like, the fact that you're leaving over what I said shows you have an issue. You have a, a problem. And the, the picture is we have to understand if we are saying we're free, are we? Are we free in that way? Secondly, avoid being a stumbling block to weaker brothers and sisters. We talked about this a few months ago back in Romans chapter 14. If you're in a situation where you are free to drink, yet you are surrounded with other weaker brothers and sisters, for the sake of them, choose not to. And then lastly, but not least, determine to pursue Christ as your ultimate pleasure in life. So sometimes people escape to alcohol because their walk with Christ is lukewarm. If you drink in moderation, be careful not to drink as a means of escape. If you need to escape, escape to Jesus. If you need to escape, escape to the word of God. If you need to escape, escape to the people of God. But don't allow alcohol to become your escape. And let me just get personal just for a second, just to kind of lay it out here. Personally, as your pastor, I do not drink. I do not. It's my personal conviction. Now, let me just kind of be honest. I was raised as a teetotaler. I was raised as a uh, Baptist pastor's son. My mom's father was a pastor for 54 years of the Southern Baptist churches. Uh, my father was a pastor of Southern Baptist for 45 years. I was raised, um, don't do it, don't touch it. Uh, I was raised that way. And I think one of the reasons I, I think about this, one of the reasons I was raised that way is because my grandfather, he understood and saw what alcohol did to many people, to many homes to many families. My father saw the same exact thing, and as a pastor, I see the same exact thing of lives that are just absolutely obliterated, families that are obliterated because of alcohol. And so from my standpoint, the conviction that God has given me is I want to be free for that so I can offer any brother and sister who struggles in this area with hope that there is freedom. You don't have to be controlled. There is hope. I was talking to an individual just a, a few weeks ago who basically texted me at 1030 and said, can I please talk with you? So I um, went and talked with them, and they were drunk as all could, could be um, and, and having a moment. But they said this. They said, I can't have any fun without alcohol. And I was like, then you don't know fun. You don't understand. You don't understand fun because you don't understand the freedom that there is apart from it. And here, here's the beautiful picture. Here's what I want you to understand. Regardless of where you are in your convictions and in this way, don't let alcohol become um, an enslaving tool in your life. So as I said before, we're going to kind of move on. According to verse 11, this miracle is not just about helping or Jesus helping um, save someone. It's about them saving face in the midst of their community. And this is about manifesting Jesus' own glory. So I want to show and lay before you three ways in which Jesus manifested, according to verse 11, his own glory, which is what verse 11 says, manifested his own glory. So number one is this. Jesus manifested his glory as an obedient son. He manifested his glory as an obedient son. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
So in this moment, right before this miracle is recorded, Jesus exalts his sonship, not to his earthly mother, but to his heavenly father. And just think about these words. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, the term woman in in that context, in that day, was not necessarily rude. Now, Jesus even used that word, woman, to speak tenderly to his mother from the cross. But there was definitely a rebuke here. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, who gets to do that? I don't get to look at my mom and say, woman, what does this have to do with me? Jesus only gets to do I tried that one time. It did not work out well for me, and I'll just leave it at, at that. But only Jesus gets to do that. But think about this. That phrase, what does this or what do you, do you have to do with me, appears five times, five other times in the New Testament, and every other time it's used by a demon who speaks to Jesus. So when Jesus would intrude into the demonic domain because it was his domain and he started to exert power where they were in control the demons would say what have you to do with us O son of god what they meant is this we don't want you pressing in here so what jesus is saying to his mom is mom why are you pressing in here why are you pressing in 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 this moment yet mary approaches her son and She definitely expected Jesus to do something. So she lays it before him. She expects him to do something. Mary was no doubt earnestly anticipating the day that Jesus demonstrated who he was. Because that day would be a day of vindication for her. It would be a vindication of, I told you he was the son of God. Y'all didn't believe me, but I told you. Keep in mind, Mary knew better than any person ever has known that Jesus was the Son of God. She remembered back to when she found out she would be pregnant with or from the Holy Spirit. She remembered Gabriel telling her that her child would be the Son of God. She remembered the shepherds showing up, the magi coming, following a star, bringing gifts. She remembers remember the words of Simeon and Anna in the temple. She knew who Jesus was. And we're not told what she expected in in this moment, but we're told that Jesus did not approve of what she said. If you've been sent by God to fulfill the mission for God of bringing salvation to the world and your mama is trying to stand in your way, then you rebuke your mama. Now, again, that only applies to Jesus. That doesn't apply to us. But Jesus is making it very clear here that he is now from under her authority, and he is now totally under the authority of his heavenly father. He is finished with his mother's business, and now he is committed to his father's business. D.A. Carson said this, Mary could no longer view Jesus as other mothers viewed their sons. Think about this from a mom's standpoint. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It's remarkable that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus establishes distance between them. She, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
So Jesus makes it very clear there would be no competing controls of his life. Jesus was bound by the Father's will in heaven, and there was no other will on earth that he would be bound to. The Father's will alone. Yet what makes this so significant and strange is that Jesus chooses to take care of the problem nonetheless. Now Jesus could have said, yes, mother, I'll take care of this immediately, because that's what he did. But that's not what he said. Instead, he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? But I love what Mary said. Because in verse 5, we have the last words that Mary ever spoke that, that are recorded in Scripture. And those words are this. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Brothers and sisters, what powerful words are those from the lips of Jesus' mother to us today. Whatever he tells you, do it. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Whatever he's telling us to do in this moment, do it. What has he told us? Are we listening? Are we doing? So Jesus manifested his glory as an obedient son, ultimately to his father. Secondly, Jesus manifested his glory as the ultimate purifier. So Jesus manifested his glory as the ultimate purifier. We're going to read about these six uh, jars of purification, and Jesus points beyond those. But let's start with the phrase in verse 4 where Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. Now, this is the first time we see this statement, but it appears over and over again in the Gospel of John. Jesus' hour is literally the hour of his death when he would die for sinners and he would make purification for your sins and my sins. So Jesus is pointing past this event to the event that would lead to much greater transformation, not just for their lives, but for our lives. And think about this. Jesus' entire life is moving toward this hour. If you were to take the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and find out how much was written about Jesus' childhood and the first 30 years of his life, do you know what you come up with? There are only four chapters in all of the Gospels that even hint at what happened in the first 30 years of Jesus' life. But there are 85 chapters in the Gospel that deal with the three years of Jesus's, or, or the last three years of Jesus' life. And of those 85 chapters, 29 of those deal with the last week of Jesus' life. And of those 29 chapters, 13 of those chapters deal with the final 24 hours of the life of Jesus. So in the Gospels, there are 579 verses that speak of the final day of Jesus' life. That was the hour. That was the hour. That was the focus of his life. So when Jesus said, my time or the hour has not yet come, that's what he was speaking about that final day. But then we are introduced in verse 6 to these six stone jars. So look, at, look with me. It's at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, which is why we're saying Jesus is the ultimate purifier, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the ser- servants in verse 7, fill the jars with water, And they filled them up to the brim. So these large jars were set aside for ritual cleansing within Jewish worship practices. Meaning the jars represented ceremonial washing that would take place before you ate, before you gathered. And 
These were not a part of the laws of God. These were part of the laws of man. And this shows us that Judaism had become a religion that focused upon the external, but often these individuals, their hearts were far from God. And so what John does is John records for us that the number of water pots here was the number six. And think about this. It's significant because the number six all the way through the Bible is the number of, of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Man labors for six days. The sixth commandment is man shall not kill another man. And here we have six pots. And John tells us that these pots were according to the manner of purification of the Jews, which means they were religious instruments. And don't miss it. Please get this. These religious instruments were empty. They were empty. And what this is a picture of today, brothers and sisters, is man in his religion is empty and useless. Practicing religion apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ will not lead to your fullness. It will lead to your emptiness. Let me say it again because some of you need to hear this today. Practicing religion, even showing up at church every Sunday apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ will not lead to your fullness. It will only lead to your emptiness. You will be empty. And Jesus tells the servants here, to fill these six jars with water. And my reaction would have been, why? We're not out of water, we're out of wine. Like, why would you have us do that? But nonetheless, they did it. And I love it because it says that they filled the jars up to the brim. Meaning they made it very clear that nothing else could have been added. Only water was, was given. And another lesson that we see here is that often we have to do the natural before God will do the supernatural. We have to do something that God tells us to do before God does what he wants to do in that process. And this might seem like the least significant of all the miracles. In fact, Jesus doesn't even announce the miracle. Jesus doesn't even walk up to the pots and go, abracadabra. He doesn't do any of those things. But here's what he's showing us. That he's the God that shows up when we, when we run out. He is the one who fills empty vessels. And we are those empty vessels. And let me just say this this morning. For those of us in this room, there are some, even today, in this room now, and will be at the next service, that are running on empty. We are running on empty. Maybe because we're putting religion over relationship. We're putting duty over delighting in him. And when we get to that place where his commands become burdensome to us, we begin to run on empty. That's what scripture says, that we will love him and his commands won't be a burden. Because when you love him, you get to do what he wants you to do. But when you are walking outside of that love, then you have to do it. And oh God, you're a heavy taskmaster. There is a huge difference between religion and relationship. Where are we at this morning? If you find yourself in this mold of religion, break free. Break free and grab a hold of the relationship that you can have every single day with Jesus Christ, even on your worst day, even in your worst sin, that relationship stays. So Jesus manifested his glory as the ultimate purifier. And then lastly, lastly this, Jesus manifested his glory as an omnipotent bridegroom. 
as an omnipotent bridegroom. And the word bridegroom there literally just means groom. So the first miracle that Jesus does was basically to do what the bridegroom in this setting couldn't do. Verse 9 says this, says this, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine. So just stop there. Water has now become wine. I love the words of Dr. Cliff Lewis. It says this. It's kind of lengthy, but follow with me here. Jesus really did change the water into wine, thus revealing his glory. At a molecular level, the water, basically hydrogen and oxygen, was changed into wine that contains sugar, yeast, and water, which contained carbon and nitrogen, along with oxygen and hydrogen. Thus, by changing water into wine, Jesus demonstrated his authority over even the atomic structure of atoms by commanding oxygen and hydrogen atoms to disassemble and reform into other atoms of different configurations. The amount of energy it would take to perform this atomic deconstruction and reconstruction is staggering. Here's what he says. This intermolecular energy being released is the source of the explosive energy of an atomic bomb. It's happening in this moment. However, since Jesus caused the wine atoms to come back together, he would have had to put this astronomical amount of energy into the atoms in order to have them reconstruct. With this single act, he says, Jesus proves that the basic forces in nature are at his command and his control. This is the point. He has control over it all. And then John continues, verse 9, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, meaning when they got to the point where they can't tell the difference, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Stop for a second. The master of ceremonies calls the bridegroom and says, you have done what no one else has ever done. And here's the point. No, he hasn't. This bridegroom let the wine run out. This one literally let it all go to pieces what we come to see though is that jesus is different where this bridegroom failed jesus doesn't fail where this bridegroom was weak jesus is omnipotent where this bridegroom failed to plan jesus has all plans he knows all things he is our perfect all-providing omnipotent bridegroom and out of water now comes wine and although the master of the ceremony enjoyed the wine he had no idea where it came from but the servants did the servants knew where it came from and think with me here the bridegroom gets the credit here for what jesus himself did the bridegroom gets the credit for the good wine that jesus literally Created out of water. He gets the credit for what Jesus had done. And don't miss it in case you're saying, well, that's not fair. That's exactly how salvation works. Jesus brings the better wine and don't miss it. We get the credit for it. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. He does all the work and don't miss it, brothers and sisters. We get the credit for it. We get the credit. In fact, you're say, if you're saying, well, that don't, that don't make sense to me, in the book of Genesis and the book of Romans, we are told of Abraham. He believed in God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Jesus did the work. We 
get the credit for it. Praise his name. And all throughout scripture, wine is a symbol for joy. And Jesus, don't miss it, came to bring transforming joy to your salvation and to my salvation. This is why when we run out of wine today, meaning when we fail in our wisdom, and we do, when we fail in our power, and we do, when we fail in our resources, and we do, when we fail to meet the righteous standards of God, and we have all fallen short of his glory. When we fail, we always fail. There is an omnipotent bridegroom who never runs out of joy to fill us, who never runs out of grace to cover us, who never runs out of mercy to help us, and he never runs out of love to pour on us. We have a Savior, hear this, who never runs out. He never, ever, ever runs out. He will provide everything that we need. Just do what he tells you. Do what he tells you. In the words of Leon Morris, he says this, This particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity and the water of Christlessness into the wine of richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ. He changes the water of law into the wine of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? And then look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11 says, this is the first of his signs. I'm wondering if the disciples didn't immediately think about Moses. Moses, we know, said, told the people of Israel that God would raise up a prophet. And they better listen to him. And one of the first miracles that Moses performed in the sight of the people was to turn water into what? Now, to turn water into blood was what Moses did. But here, Jesus' first miracle is to turn water into wine. Meaning, Moses' first miracle brought destruction and misery. Yet Jesus' first miracle brought relief and joy. There is a difference. May we not miss it. Remember, as we said on week one, John tells us almost at the end of his book, in John 20, 31 and 30, or 30 and 31, why he writes this book. He, in, in John 20, 30 and 31, uh, John writes these words, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And you can even see it on the screen. Listen to what it says. And manifested his glory, and his disciples did what? His disciples believed in him. So these were men that had already left. They'd already followed Jesus. They had already believed. But now they believe in him again. Because for John, faith wasn't a one time and you're done sort of thing. According to John, you don't just believe and then walk away. No, you believe in Jesus. You follow him and he gives you a million other reasons to believe. 
He gives you more and more reasons. As you follow him, you just keep believing in him. You keep seeing things you've never seen before. And your belief in him just does amazing things because the object of your belief never changes and only is revealed to you more and more and greater and greater. How has your belief in him grown? Let me say this this morning. If there's any in this room today who you like those six jars are empty. If you are empty because of religion, if you are empty because you have done things the religious way, there is only one way to be full, and that is through Jesus Christ. That is through believing him. That is through trusting him. That is through acknowledging and receiving what he has done for you. The only way to ever be filled and to ever be saved from religion is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would, if you are here today, have never entered into that relationship, may today be the day of salvation. But let me also say this. It is very likely that there are even Christians in this room today that you, like David in Psalm 51, has, have lost the joy of your salvation. Where the joy of your salvation is kind of feigned and, and faded out, and you find yourself kind of even doing small things have become burdensome. And when that point comes where things, where serving God becomes a burden, what it means is you've lost the joy of your salvation. You've lost the joy of what it means to be saved by him, to walk with him, to see him meet your every need, to see him being the one who provides for you always, never running out. Today might be a day for you to say, oh God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Give me that joy again as I follow you. Give me that joy again. Let me end today with the words of Mary. Whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says, whatever he's telling you today, do it. You can go wrong with listening to me. You can go very wrong with listening to Kenny. But you cannot go wrong with listening to Jesus. Do what he tells you to do. Amen, Kenny? Amen. So let's go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to call the musicians forward and enter into this time of invitation and consecration. And let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the only begotten son, that you are the one who pleased the Father fully, totally, completely. In fact, on that night before your death in the garden, Jesus, you said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, we thank you that you are the purifier, that through your death on the cross, we can have forgiveness. That our sins are not just covered, they are removed. And Father, you see us, not in our sin, you see us covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. That we are his. And he is ours. And Jesus, you are the bridegroom who never disappoints. You are the bridegroom who never runs out. Help us to attach ourselves to you, not as a religion, but in relationship. Today I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that today would be a day of salvation. Anyone here who is running on empty because they're trusting in religion today, God Set them free from that and may they enter in this day into a relationship with you, Jesus, as Savior and Lord. Turning from trusting themselves, turning away from their sin and turning to you, Jesus. But I also pray for brothers and sisters in this room that have lost the joy of their salvation. 
restore to us once again that joy. Give us fullness of joy. For there, your word says there is fullness of joy in your presence. Help us to find it there because we can only find it there. Just finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen.